To pay or not to pay? That is the internship question. Hello listeners, and no, you haven't stumbled across some kind of frightening modern take on Shakespeare. This is still Careers Talk, and I'm still Kerry Eustace. But the reason I came over all Hamlet for a moment back then is that this week we have a very special edition of the pod in which we are tackling the question as essential as Hamlet's dithering over to be or not to be. Should interns get paid? Yes, this week Careers Talk is morphing into Interns Talk as we have guests from the websites Inspiring Interns and Interns Anonymous coming into the studio to debate this all-important aspect of the modern working world. Plus, dear Julian returns with some insights on impressing at interviews and clearly with our minds on holidays, we've got a jobs chart packed with roles that include international travel. But first, careers crusader Harriet Minter and jobs juggernaut Ali White are here to review this week's headlines. There's been some scary stats in the news this week. Um, Harriet, do you want to start us off with that? Sure. Uh, The big story this week obviously has to be the 1.3 million jobs to be lost, which was leaked by the Treasury. And um, basically what's happened is the Treasury have looked at what the austerity budget is going to cost in the way of jobs over the next five years. And they think it's um, 100 to 120,000 public sector jobs a year or 120 to 140,000 private sector jobs a year. Total 1.3 million. Which wow, is a that's lot. a staggering figure, isn't it? Mm. On it's top of already on top really of, high on yeah. mm. figures. I, I find that quite terrifying. What's interesting as well about this story is that um, this week, I think, Nick Clegg's also announced a one billion fund to encourage regional enterprise. So we were talking about this being we another were. way that could create jobs. Yeah, because he wants the idea of regional enterprise. In fact, the idea behind, I think, pretty much the entire coalition um, logic is that although we're cutting down... And by cutting down, we're going to force people to be more innovative and to create their own businesses, to start their own workplaces. And although I think it can be scary if you've been working particularly in the public sector for so long and you're so used to having a big organisation around you, if lots and lots of people start up small companies, that is at least some form of job creation. I know the original plan was that the private sector was supposed to create 2.5 million jobs over the next five years and that now looks possibly like it won't happen but I think this has to be a time when people kind of sit down and think okay I'm not going to get a job in the traditional route but what other skills can I have and what else can I sell that is exciting the jobs cuts is scary yeah Ali, what's your story? Uh, well, mine is also looking at sort of regional working and, you know, where, where you're based. But this is um, Work and Pension Secretary Ian Duncan-Smith saying millions of people are actually trapped in ghettos of poverty. And he's sort of talking about actually moving them to where the work is. Um, and this is people in council homes that traditionally find it hard to move out of the area. And he's saying, well, this is what they want to get people moving, really, to where the work is. And perhaps they haven't had the opportunities to travel to work like people, you know, can afford to commute or get themselves out the area so he's saying we're going to move them towards it but it's not gone down you know particularly well well I, you know that's maybe a bit unfair but um there was a piece on SIF that kind of rebutted this and it was Diane Abbott who is the MP for Hackney North yeah. and Stoke Newington and she wasn't you know she was saying the unspoken threat is one of coercion he's trying to claim he's trying to help the unemployed but the truth is his proposal is cruel unworkable and refers to a world of work that has gone by really and sort of further on in her article, she's saying, you know, family structures can be important, you know, and women work as well. You know, I think her point was he's looking at the traditional model of the 
and man being the breadwinner and you know move move where the work is the family will pack up and join him but if she's saying well what about when women are the breadwinner or two of you have got jobs in one area what are you meant to do so what's interesting is has been how extreme the negative reaction to this is Mm -hmm. and I think it's because what the proposal doesn't really take into account is that your home is more than just where you work exactly it's where your family roots are it's where your base is you might have children in schools as you say you might have another partner who's working there as well yeah but that said I think if you find yourself in long-term unemployment Mm -hmm. it might be that as a family you have to look at the situation and think what can we do about this because if you are really skilled in one particular trade and that trade has gone from your area, I think it's going to be more depressing not to be able to work than to be able to move and find yourself a better job. So I think it's you know, maybe good that they're trying to emphasize that, but I think just saying to people you should up sticks and go <laughs> is maybe not the way to do it. Another thing to note is that relocating is just part and parcel of some roles and some yeah, sectors, isn't it? We, yeah. This is another thing we were talking about this week, like teachers, in order to progress, sometimes they have to move to a different borough or a different yeah. region in order to progress their career in a school. And um, The media, for example, I mean, it's yeah, traditionally been London. BBC. BBC have moving. gone up to Manchester, to Media City. Yeah. So if you now want to work for them all these graduates who might have come south originally and said, oh, I want to work for the BBC, that's what I want to do, so I'm going to come down to London, are now going to have to look at whether actually what they want to do means they're happy to move for their career. Yeah, and I think the point that Ian Duncan Smith was trying to make is it's not too drastic. It's like saying, you know, don't expect people to relocate to different parts of the country, but where work is available up to 15 miles away and they go to the top of the housing list. So I think he's kind of hoping... It's not really that that yeah, far I think it's, yeah. it's an interesting idea yeah absolutely all right my story I've also got some kind of scary stats to share and um this is that graduates can face 270 rivals for a job so if you're a graduate this will give you an idea of how many people you're up against and we've recently been talking about the UK graduate careers survey and this is a follow-up survey from the same organization high flyers called the graduate market in 2010 and it's an end of year update on graduate vacancies at Britain's top employers which are um, voted for by graduates so it's 100 employers that they pick out and So on average, employers are receiving 45 applications per position. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some industries, it goes up to 270. Um, That's narrowed, though, 45 applications from last year, where it was 52 applications on average per job. (laughs) So it's a little bit better. Um, But obviously, competition's much fiercer than before the recession, where it was 35 applications on average. Um, But I can tell you about which sectors are toughest, if if you'd like to know. Um, Consumer goods, manufacturers, media firms, banking and finance, um, investment banks and oil and energy companies uh, received at least 70 applications per graduate position. Media jobs have 106.4 applications per place. (laughs) Uh, Banking and finance, 74.4. Whereas accountancy and professional services firms have just 15 per per role. So you're sort of thinking about... Um, and only two groups of employers the survey revealed are offering fewer vacancies this year than before, which is law firms and the public sector. Okay. But the public sector is still one of the taking biggest on one of the biggest yeah. recruiters of graduates, which is quite interesting considering what we've been talking about yeah. with cuts and everything. It's still 
highest in terms of graduates. And what I thought was interesting about this is sort of like how many people are applying for sort of the top firms, sort of like the uni leavers and Procter mm-hmm. and Gambles and that sort of thing, is that I kind of w- would encourage graduates to spread their net a little bit wider. I think so. Do a bit more research beyond what is posted up in the Careers yeah. <laughs> Advice Centre. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and also it's it's perfectly understandable to target these sort of like pedestal firms well-known firms and it's something to aim for but I think it's it's important to remember that your career is steps and that you can work towards it and you know you could work if you're aiming for like sort of the BBC or Apple or Google keep that in mind but maybe take a job in a smaller firm Mm. or a lesser known firm where you can build your skills and sort of work your way towards and also what happens a lot of time I think if you work for a smaller firm is that you can progress much faster you're going to have a much greater chance of getting involved in more sectors and so broadening your skills. And also, you're probably going to be given more responsibility at a younger age, yeah. which is great for your CV. Yeah. I, I think it's funny, especially with journalism. I remember when I sort of first came out of uni, I was like, yeah, I want to, I'm applying to the NME and Vogue. <laughs> <laughs> like thinking I really had a chance. And journalists where I meet, like, you know, budding journalists that I meet now still same, say the same thing. So... Maybe have a dream. <laughs> yeah. you know, fish farming weekly to start yeah. <laughs> Now, Julian's experience of grilling celebs and climbing the career ladder in publishing have taught him a few things about interviews. All this came in handy for this week's Dear Julian feature. Hello, it's Julian Lindley back again. Uh, I'm here to answer another of your questions. Uh, We've had lots of questions in this week, but this is a particularly good one that I think applies to lots of people. This is from Cat79. I have a couple of interviews coming up and I'm hopeless at them. I even failed to get a job I was invited to apply for because I was so rubbish at the interview. I'm slowly getting a handle on my nerves, but I always seem to get stuck by the same questions and I'm never sure what the right answer is. Do you have any advice on the type of thing that impresses people? It would be much appreciated. Okay, Kat, well, thanks for the letter. Do you know what? This is something that comes up time and time again. Actually, not just for people going into jobs for the first time, but also, you know, when you progress up the interview ladder. It's a stressful situation, interviews. Accept that, you know, and accept that you're not the only person that feels that way. The first thing I'd say is that honesty is a really great policy, always. And quite often, it's a great thing to do when you go into an interview to uh, say in a very light-hearted manner, oh, I feel really nervous about this, you know, in a kind of jokey way, they'll be expecting you to be nervous. In fact, I would probably be very suspicious if someone came in to be interviewed by me who wasn't nervous. So it sort of, in a way, might diffuse your own feelings of being uncomfortable. So that would be my first piece of advice. The second is, whenever you're asked a question, don't feel like you've got to jump in and answer straight away. I always make sure I've got a bottle or a glass of water with me so that you can take a sip, gather your thoughts before sort of launching straight into an answer. And if you completely lost it, then, you know, just again, be honest, just say, I'm really sorry, I'm so nervous, do you mind if I start that again? Obviously, this goes without saying that preparation is key for an interview. So you might feel like an absolute twerp, but it's really worthwhile doing some practice interview stuff with a friend or a trusted colleague where you work. And certainly, you know, one of the things that Kat actually brings up in the longer letter is that she never knows how to deal with awkward questions like how do you deal with conflict in the workplace? She says because she's never experienced that. Try and draw on experiences uh, in your wider life rather than, you know, the work situation if you've never had that. What they're looking for is to test and push you to see how you come up with a response to a difficult situation because, you know, 
it probably will come up in your work life and and they just want to see what character you're making the office cat also asks about how to deal with working under pressure and it's, it's interesting actually because clearly she understands what the answer is because she says well I just get on with it and is that the right answer yes it is actually you just say you just get on with it but you might want to find a way to be slightly more articulate about it and explain how exactly it is that you you kind of operate under pressure so you say well I get my head down I prioritize my work I don't answer emails for an hour I turn my mobile off I only answer very urgent telephone calls they're sort of looking for you to talk around the question but ultimately you've got the answer so you really shouldn't be nervous so even if you get sort of halfway or all the way through your interview and you think actually this hasn't gone as well as I thought it would you can still sort of pull it back from the edge I mean it happened to me with my very first job interview I kind of realized in the first few minutes that I was way underqualified for the position I was being interviewed for and um, I'd lost my confidence a little bit because I had no idea how to answer the questions. However, what I did know and what I kept very focused on at that point was I know about pop music, I know about television, and I'm just going to show them that I really know my stuff. And so I just started talking about music and I talked about soap operas. And although it didn't get me the job I applied for, it really got me a job at the magazine that I've gone to. So, you know, enthusiasm goes a long, long way. Uh, So to sum up, my three tips would uh, be honest, but be confident at the same time. So if, you know, it's okay to be nervous. My second tip would be do your preparation. So know what you're applying for and know everything about the industry and the company that you're applying to. And then my third piece of advice is bowl them over with your enthusiasm and your excitement about the job. That was Creative Director at Bauer, Julian Lindley, on how to impress at interviews. Dear Julian, eagerly awaits your questions and queries on all aspects of work in life. You can post your burning questions in the comments section below or over in the careers forum and Julian will address them in the podcast. Time for a quick review of the Coping with Public Sector Cuts Q&A now. We might have to run another one of these soon if those 1.3 million job losses Mm. prediction actually becomes a reality. Um, Ali, do you want to share some highlights for this one? Sure. First of all, I thought this was really interesting, but stress is contagious. And I've seen this in workplaces before. There's rumours going round and, you know, the kind of jungle drums gossip is, you know, and everyone's getting really hit up. But one of our panellists said, you know, just acknowledge that this is stressful times and it is contagious and just continue to treat each other with dignity and respect and, you know, keep that in mind, really. And, you know, things that managers can do uh, to to minimise the stress and anxiety is to keep clear and open communication and responsible management practices and just build an environment where people can raise their concerns, really, maybe informally even, so you can all get talking. And which brings me to my second point, really, is, again, communication is key during these times of uncertainty. And one of our panellists brought up the example of Canada, which has been quoted in the press recently for the approach they've taken to public sector cutbacks. And they said, and I think there was some research done there, that once clear but difficult decisions were taken, employee engagement and morale actually improved. And this was measured before and after these difficult decisions were made. So really, I think the point he was saying was employees would rather know the bad news up front rather than, you know, a period of uncertainty yeah. and procrastination. So that's a tip for managers, I expect, really. Uh, you know, once the information's there, just be honest. You know, people, I think, really appreciate that. 
And uh, so some advice really for people who are working in that area at the moment is be flexible as well and be ready to change. You know, we know the change is going to happen and people that, you know, are able to change the way they work, be a bit creative, are going to find themselves hopefully, you know, in a position where they might be able to change their role and work ahead. And the, the panellists who brought this up said for someone who's going to retreat into that, that's not my job territory, they might not find it's their job soon anyway. <laughs> Now, forced to fetch endless coffees, chained to the photocopier and surviving on expenses. No, we're not talking about Deputy (laughs) PM Nick Clegg, but the grim reality of the modern internship. But is that the whole story? Are internships just exploitation or are they a great way to boost your employability for free? Internships have become an increasingly important element of the modern careers world and they recently hit the headlines again when the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development called for employers to be legally obliged to pay a guaranteed minimum of £2.50 an hour for all advertised internships. So we've decided to host a debate on the issue. Joining me in the studio now are Ben Rosen, Managing Director of Inspiring Interns, a recruitment company that specialises in finding graduates three-month internships in their desired field of work, and Alex Try, co-founder of Interns Anonymous, an online community where users can, as the name suggests, anonymously share the highs and more often lows of their internships and experiences. Alex graduated from University of Manchester in 2008 and spent a year on the internship treadmill before finding his first paid work. So, gentlemen, the question is to pay or not to pay. Um, I want to ask you first what your viewpoint is on on paid internships. Ben, do you want to start us off? Hi. (laughs) It's easy to complain about internships, but if they're correctly targeted and structured, inspiring interns have proven... They're the one of the solutions to graduate unemployment, as roughly two-thirds of our interns go on to get full-time paid jobs at the company they intern at, and the remainder go to find work elsewhere on the back of their experience. In this harsh economic climate, small companies are simply unable to take on untrained, inexperienced staff, even on a minimum wage, and even the bigger companies are holding back on their graduate intakes. So what are the graduates doing? They're fruitlessly applying for fewer jobs than ever before, and they're up against more competition too. For some graduates, the idea of doing an internship isn't even an issue. Many have known which career path they wanted to follow for a long time. They've gone through the graduate schemes, attained excellent grades, got experience under their belt, and already fit the corporate mould. However, an ever-increasing number of graduates that come through our doors are not yet employable. They don't have the professional skills, experience or know-how and we're hearing the same phrase over and over again. I've been applying for jobs for ages but had no luck. Everyone asks for a minimum of six months experience but how can I get it without having it? The answer is do an inspiring internship. We have found that an average starting salary after completing an internship is roughly double the minimum wage. So we're seeing that Low-paid internships are directly leading to graduate career opportunities, essentially creating new jobs that didn't exist previously and helping to drive the economy forwards. So, in my opinion, a structured, inspired internship is a bridge to enable a graduate to become employable. Thanks, Ben. Alex, um, do you want to share your opinions on unpaid internships now? I mean, we we kind of come at it at a a slightly different perspective to Ben. Uh, 
he's uh, running a company which is trying to make a profit out of the intern industry. Um, we've been running our site for a, a, a year and a bit. Um, we've had hundreds and hundreds of interns come to contact us to describe their experiences, both good and bad. Um, and, and kind of as we see it, there are maybe three key points or three key issues which arise from the the, the unpaid internship phenomenon, because I think that's what it's increasingly become. Internships are becoming increasingly institutionalised in the graduate job market. Um, they're replacing entry-level jobs. And with the squeeze on the, the number of graduate roles there, the, the competition for unpaid internships is, is ever-increasing. And, and as Ben said, employers aren't willing to, to take a chance on graduates and employers aren't willing to, to stretch a, a budget for a, an assistant or, or, or something like that. The issue which arises from this is that those who get ahead are those that can afford to get ahead. So if you've got parents to support you, if you live in London where the majority of internships are located, if you have the right connections, then you've got a massive advantage over your peers. And basically, we don't think that's very fair. Um, and finally, there's the, the kind of the legal issues. If you're working set hours, doing set tasks, are relied upon by your um, by your colleagues to do work, then legally you're classed as a worker under national minimum wage, and you should be paid five pound whatever it is an hour. And the fact that um, employers aren't willing to follow the law, and companies like Inspiring Interns are propagating the myth that you don't have to pay the national minimum wage to people who are doing work, this kind of goes to the heart of the problems in the graduate job market. Okay, well, you've just touched on national minimum wage. And and as I mentioned in my intro, there's been a, a recommendation this week that the training wage is introduced for £2.50 an hour. So, Alex, what do you think of the training wage? Because there's been a blog post on your site about this and you weren't too... You weren't too convinced. Yeah, really. yeah. Uh, I, when, when I when I uh, came across it, I was I was pretty shocked. I mean, I I thought the kind of the, the debate was moving away from minimum wage to, um, especially in London, to a a, a living wage. The um, the post for our website was uh, sent into us by an anonymous intern, and it, uh, it it kind of just raised the 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 kind of the obvious issues that you know, how can you afford to to survive on half the national minimum wage and and the fact that it's it's taking graduates for a ride you know you try you know paying rent at 100 pound a week plus your travel plus whatever on on minimum wage and it's difficult and then you half that or more than half that to 250 an hour and you know the issue is only exacerbated i mean it's madness i don't like 100 pound a week i don't know how you can you, you can be expected to pay rent on that and, and, you know, the, the, we're not talking about 16-year-olds fresh out of school. We're talking about graduates with £10,000, £20,000 worth of debt and, and, you know, degrees behind them. I, I, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. Same question to you, Ben. What was your reaction to the training wage? Well, um, internships are merely a bridge between a graduate coming out of university and being wet behind the ears to a graduate being employable, having contacts, understanding how to communicate within a working environment and therefore being employable. Do you have regular clients who use you for interns? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so they come back to you again and again. That's right. So and in, w- so they're in- recruiting these interns again and again. Are they then taking these people on? Correct, yes. So why them. can they not afford? I mean, this is what I don't understand. Why can they not afford to take a risk on these people? Most contracts, most employment contracts, will have a three-month well, notice period. It's interesting you say that because what we are doing at Inspiring Interns, we're not placing people in jobs that already exist. We're creating new jobs. 
by building a mutually beneficial relationship between the employer and the and the intern who can make themselves indispensable and create a role for themselves. We found in the past year and a half, we've placed 377 interns into internships, graduates into internships. Of the 377 people placed into internships, 212 have attained full-time positions on average of 22,000 a year, which is about double the national minimum wage. I don't want graduates to earn the national minimum wage. We're not looking to build a big population of graduates earning the national minimum wage in London. We want to get them on a career path so they can put their learnings and university studies and their abilities to good use. Can I come in here? Yeah, Actually, I mean, we, sure. we, we run a, um, a poll on our website asking graduates about what they, or in, ex-interns and interns, what their um, job prospects like are after that. And we've had almost 250 people take it. And our, one of the first questions we asked was, did your internship lead to a job in the same organisation? 81% of them said no. Of those 81%, we asked, did your employer help you with your job search? 82.1% no. What are you doing now? 41% unemployed, 22.2% uh, doing another internship, 22.2% uh, gone back to university. And invariably, the, the, the news we get is that interns feel shortchanged by their experiences and feel like employers would get them in for, for three months and then, you, you know, you have a rolling scheme and then you kick them out and get someone else in. That was my experience of, of an internship at a think tank where I, I walked in um, after going through an extensive interview process to find that the entire office was unpaid work. But I think there needs to be uh, more discussion about the, the benefits of an internship to, to, actually, to actually getting you a, a job. And I don't think, Ben, what you're saying... Um, is is entirely fair. You talk about um, getting uh, graduates um, paid positions as a as a result of the the work you do, but according to your website, you take a ten percent cut of their first year's salary, which, as far as I can work out, is is incredibly illegal. Uh, it's actually ten uh, percent is actually fifty percent cheaper than the average recruitment uh, charge in in the city of London. There is a problem in London with internships. We are not a social operation, we're a commercial uh, operation. We make the majority of our fees when people get a full-time role. Uh, we don't take on any internships unless it's going to lead to a full-time role. This graduate unemployment issue is massive, it's huge, and we've come up with a solution. There's going to be many solutions to the problem. We've come up with a solution that's practically working. We are seeing people on a daily basis we do psychometric testing, we meet the candidates, we organise their video CV, we help them direct them to what their ambitions and personalities are. We offer an extensive service. If we didn't offer such a good matching service, we wouldn't be able to have such a good conversion rate. So yes, we do charge for our service, but we are creating new graduate jobs and, and I um, feel very good about that. Can I just pick up on a point of Ben's where he talked about um, internships being the bridge into employment? And I think that's quite an important issue as well, is that you are sort of training, you're gaining experience to become a fully rounded professional, let's say. So how do we sort of reconcile that with um, being paid? It's, a, it's, a, it's the key to the question. Um, I mean, my, my internships or some of my internships, you know, gave me, gave me great experience and they... Um, they helped my my CV massively. They gave me loads of confidence, and and none of them were paid. Um, but I think uh, 
giving them national minimum wage or or more accurately obeying the national minimum wage law as it stands, which I think is is important to to say. You know, when national minimum wage was um, uh, introduced in 1997 or wherever it was, people were saying that it would, you know, create uh, massive problems. No one would would hire anyone and and stuff like that. I think that, you know, if you follow national minimum wage guidance, if you take a chance on someone, if you invest in in an employee and, you know, give them training, look after them, you know, they're going to reward you and and they're going to work hard for your company. You know, you get back what you invest. And I think my my worry about this is that internships are becoming institutionalized and that companies see internships as as cheap employment and a way to cut the budget. And, you know, then, you know, the opportunities have been squeezed and, you know, we we, uh, are left in a situation where there's, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of young people unemployed. I just wanted to change subject slightly and ask you both what oh. you would ideally like oh. to see for interns. I mean, legislation-wise, would it be minimum wage? Would it be training wage? Would it be more structure to the internships? Yeah, well, what I'd like to see is uh, all internships to have the opportunity of a full-time job at the end of them, all of them to have a, a manager, somebody managing them. If they're structured internships, what we've proven is if the graduate uh, works hard is friendly, then they've got a great chance of building a career and getting on that getting on that ladder of paid employment. It's easy to go back to criticising, you know, well, but it's not fair. It's not fair that uh, graduates aren't paid national minimum wage for structured internships. It's not fair. Well, currently, the British economy is not fair. Alex, what would you like to see for interns? Uh, I mean, the, there's obviously the legal issue of national minimum wage, which we've discussed, and and it's not it's not really a case of of saying more legislation is needed. The the law is is clear as it stands. If you're working set hours, set tasks are relied upon by your colleagues to do do work, then you should be paid the national minimum wage. What I'd like to see is is actually more of a cultural change, an understanding that there's an issue out there and that people should try and talk about it and understand the problems in the graduate job market. And I think that the attitude needs to change from the budget is short, oh, let's get an intern in, or, you know, interns represent very effective but inexpensive labour, which was what um, one of Ben's colleagues wrote on an article um, on startups.co.uk. You know, I think it needs to move away from this uh, viewing of an, of an intern as, as, as cheap labour or a bit of help and actually think, OK, how can we invest in our our future employer and and, uh, and and give them a great experience. That might not necessarily be national minimum wage. They've got they've got to come out with uh, you know with with a series of skills on their CV which they can take to their next employer and say, please just give me a paid job because that's what the majority of people want. To sort of maybe share some more advice and finish on a nice note, do you both maybe have some tips on how you can make the most of an internship? Yeah, I think you need to always keep your your internship on your own terms. I don't think you, if you you know you're struggling to survive financially and you're doing uh, a three month internship and after a month and a half you've got what you felt you've got out of it, just say look I can't afford it anymore and get out. I also think you need to you need to go into your internship with very clear aims in mind. You need to say okay I want this experience, this experience, this experience on my CV, and you need to say to your your boss look this is what I want. You know this is an investment in my in my future. And, and always keep it on your own terms. Ben? Life would be wonderful if we could try and keep everything on our own terms. Um, the way to make the most out of your internship uh, is pretty simple. Prove that you're professional, turn up on time, 
look smart, be proactive, volunteer to help. Remember, you've got two ears and one mouth to listen the twice the amount that you talk. Be friendly and be amiable and enjoy it. Thanks very much to Alex Tribe from Interns Anonymous and Ben Rosen from Inspiring Interns. Um, I'm sure you'll all agree that was a, a fascinating discussion, although it doesn't seem like we've really come to any conclusion. Um, on one hand, it is unfair that interns are being paid, especially in companies where interns are providing all the labour. They're running the entire business. But as Ben said, again, we're in an economic downturn and there are fewer jobs around, so opportunities are scarce and should be cherished. Um, if you're an intern and you're feeling exploited, there's lots of support networks out there um, the TUC carries lots of rights and we'll be carrying lots of links on the site and do let us know what you think thanks very much moving swiftly on to some paid for posts now Harriet's picked out some jobs for the high flyers among you all with the added perk of international travel joining us from the Guardian Jobs team this week we have Nahid Ibrahim who's here to help Ali reveal a jet set chart Taking off at 10, it's a junior sales exec with Barron and Green. The Chamber of Shipping is looking for a director at 9. 8 is a business intelligence consultant for Vanquish Recruitment. While at 7 is a senior analyst in Sulfuric Acid for the Resources Centre. Recruitment consultants Dragonfly are looking for an exhibition sales manager at 6. And 5 is an executive assistant based in Switzerland. At 4, exec appointments are looking for a chief financial officer. It's a commissioning editor for Arctic House Books at three. Coming in at two, McDonald and Company need an urban designer. But this week's high flyer is head of cabin crew with Virgin Atlantic. For more info on those roles and lots more, you can visit guardianjobs.co.uk. As always, we'll tie up the show with some dates for your diary. Um, Ali, what have you got for us? Okay, date. We'll be continuing the internships debate on the 6th of July with Should You Take an Unpaid Placement? 7th of July, we have Roots into HR. Next day, 8th of July, our graduate series continues with um, What Can I Do with an Arts Degree? And finally, July 9th, Roots into Lecturing. And that's it for this week. Thanks very much to our guests, Ben Rosen and Alex Try, Julian Lindley, Nahid Ibrahim from Guardian Jobs, and of course, Harriet Minter and Ali White. I'm Kerry Eustace. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye.